Welcome to another episode of War Stories. I'm Tom. And I'm Chuck. And uh, this is a is a very special episode for us. Um, this episode yep. comes out the week of September 11th. And so we were lucky enough, fortunate enough, honored enough to have Chuck get us uh, one of the guests that I probably am looking forward to the most um, that we've had in a long time. And we should do a surprise release, actually. Yeah. People who normally get this on Monday. Well, September right. 11th is this Sunday, so we should just release it Sunday. Yeah. That way people Let's get a, a get a get a get a surprise because this is a very special episode. Yep. And it's been months in the well, about it's a been month a while in the making, making. Yeah. Yeah. So um tell us uh tell us about our guest, Chuck. So um Caitlin reached out to us um regarding um her father who served in a ladder company in, in, in New York and um and thought it we have September 11th coming up and, you know, said, Hey, reached out. And I don't know if you guys do this type of stuff, but maybe this would be something you're looking at. And I said, absolutely. Um, and started talking to her and um, started talking about her father and um, her father was there on the ground uh, during September 11th um, on that, that faithful day when lots of Americans lost their lives and a horrific act perpetrated by terrorists and just violent bastards. Yeah, and so this is a special ep- episode for us, and it's near and dear to my heart because ever since I can remember, September 11th has been a big thing because um, I watched it happen. I remember where I was, and I think everybody does that day when they remember where they were when that attack happened. And then yeah. coming early on to the job, um, a friend of mine was actually there, boots on the ground, during September 11th. And ended up becoming uh, a cop in, in, in Los Angeles. And I would always hear him speak um, regarding this day. And so when this got brought up, I was like, it's, it's got to happen. We got to make this happen because this is something that um, we will never forget. And those who, uh, the heroes that day will live on forever in infamy. So, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's an event that defined a generation. So I wanted to selfishly welcome Caitlin and a guest with an incredibly great name. Her father Tom. <laughs> How are you, sir? Hi. Good, good. How are you doing? We're glad to have you. Um, and uh we're looking forward to uh having this episode with you. But uh I, I wanted to start with uh Caitlin, maybe if we could real quick, and talk to you about um how you ended up reaching out to us and uh and convincing your father that this would be something he should do. <laughs> <laughs> So I have a best friend who introduced me to the podcast. We were both planning on applying to the police academy at the same time. I've been listening for about a year and I was scrolling on Instagram, going through an Instagram story. And I had saw that, you know, somebody wanted to be on the podcast to reach out. <clears throat> so I sent the email and I didn't say anything to my dad. I had decided that unless you guys said yes, I wasn't going to bring it up. And I was just kind of going to spring it on him. Um, so that's what I did. It took a little, a little bit of convincing, but, um, I think that it's important that, you know, he shares his stories and I want to have this for when I have grandkids that this day is never forgotten. I 
you know, I think that my dad is like the coolest person ever. And, um, as you should, he's a hero to me, right? He's a hero to me and to so many others. And, um, we're doing a stair climb at West Palm beach this week for nine 11 on, on the 11th. Um, so he's going to be there. He's not going to climb with us, but me and my best friend are going to climb for him and his brothers. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to say that he's probably climbed enough stairs that he doesn't, yeah, he, he's earned the right to he watch. <laughs> he doesn't need to do that, <laughs> but, um, I just, I think that he's, you know, he's my hero and I want his story out there. I think that it's important that he shares his experience, um, his strength and that. I love my dad. <laughs> Good. And, uh, now Tom, uh, I'm going to get you to adjust your earpiece again. Cause I think it's plugged up again. Okay. But I'm it down. Okay. okay. Perfect. <laughs> um, and I'll cut that part. Uh, <laughs> Now, Tom, hearing that stuff from your daughter, obviously, you know, I'm a dad. I, you know, I, I understand how that can be humbling, right? It's, it's a little. Yeah. Yeah. It gets, uh, I don't know, a lot of people call you a hero. Um, and I don't feel like a hero. I just happen to be there doing a job that got caught up into this mess. Mm -hmm. And uh, I lost a lot of friends. You know, when you go through 30 or 40 funerals and uh, memorials, it, it gets to you. you know, I, I have a lot of brothers that can take it, soak it in, and just keep going. I, I wasn't able to do that. Uh, right. It's... This took the wind right out of my sail that day. I can only imagine. Yeah. I can yeah. only imagine. And I mean, I told the story a hundred times, what I went through. I mean, from the minute I got it work. And it was, it was a beautiful day. It was clear blue skies, not a cloud anywhere. I figured, well, it's a nice day. I'm going to be up on the roof when we have spare time and tending to the garden on top of the firehouse. You had a garden on top oh. of the firehouse? Yes, we had a couple of kiddie pools <laughs> and soil and stuff, and we would plant tomatoes and cucumbers. You know, things for every day, lunch or dinner. Yeah, like a vegetable you know, garden. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Most animals. Well, if you don't mind, I wanted I wanted to back you up a little bit because I want to find out how you got to the fire department. We we always like to start with um, what brought you to firefighting. What how how did you end up becoming a firefighter in the first place? I was uh, born and raised right across the street from the firehouse. I'm on in a town called Albertson, and it's volunteers. So my bedroom. Was in the upstairs looking out, as they say, a doghouse window. Looking out of the room, I can see the firehouse right there. It's a stone throw. And every time that sign, years ago, they'd have a sign and it would well five or six times, take a break, well again five or six times. And that was to alert, work you, or wake you out of your sleep. No matter where you lived in Albertson, you would hear these sirens. They had two of them. So every time that woke me up, 
And I get on my knees and I look out the fire. I look out the window towards the firehouse, and I watch these guys show up minutes later in their car, or who lived close enough when you'd see them run to the firehouse. And then that old fire truck would start, and it would spit and bang and clank and just make some awful noise. I'd, I'd watch these guys leave, standing on the back step, go around the corner and disappear, hear the sirens for a few minutes, and then that would, would stop. They'd be at the, wherever they had to do. Was that the old growler? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These things, these were, I think the wood of France, these old trucks. And they were all the old uh, four speed. So it was, you had a double clutch and uh, it was just a big hassle loud. They just always backfired. <laughs> <laughs> and they always knew the fire truck was coming. Right. So I would wait up until they would come back. Once they pulled the truck back in the firehouse and they all left, then I'd go back to sleep. So that was my story. And then the first one out of my family of six. And uh, I I had a calling to serve. I didn't want to go in the armed forces or anything like that. But uh, because I really didn't believe in killing. Mm-hmm. What so year I was still this? don't. Oh, geez. When I was, this had to be 63, four. I started realizing when I was, what, five or six, that uh, I wanted to be a fireman. Okay. I never thought of handling somebody as a heart attack or anything. It was just mainly get in there, pull the people out, put the fire out, go home. And and firefighting in, in the '60s was still a lot more about fighting fire than it was about medical uh, medical yeah. aids and stuff like that, right? Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. all about firefighting. Yeah. You know, and uh, everything burned back now. Nowadays, uh, most stuff will burn, but they put off a real bad chemical hmm. that it, it's in the air, and you must wear your mask. You know, there's right. just no way you're not going to last a second. And I mean, years so, ago, we were able to stand. Oh, yeah, I'm so, sure, because years ago, it was wood and plat- it was yeah, natural probably. substances. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Cotton and wood. <laughs> yeah. Now mm-hmm. it's all the carcinogens and plastics. Yeah, plastics yeah. and if, methyl ethyl bad shit. But so did watching started. the Vietnam War go down, oh. did that also change your opinions and, and, and thoughts about joining the armed forces? Or did it really, did you already know ahead of time as a child and that didn't really make a big difference? I didn't know why or understand why they were there. All I understood was when they came back, the way they were treated. Right. right. That stuck in my body. They went to serve and come back to people spit on them. Hmm. That's one of the reasons why I didn't want to go. I mean, believe me, God, I'm not going to come home and have people spit on me for something I was sent there to do. Right. You know, that was that affected me a big time Vietnam War, and uh, I lost a few neighbors. 
Um, one of my older brothers served like two years before the Vietnam War, so he didn't have to go. I had another brother who was would have been prime time for Vietnam, but he had a uh, a mental condition he was born with, so he wasn't able to serve. Okay. So we lucked out. And I had another brother, and he was three weeks into being drafted. He had his card. He had three weeks, and the war was over. So wow. they didn't take him. So was, you know, that was close, and I got to watch all this, you know, unfold. So I think that's what shaped me into what I've decided to do in my life. So it's night around 1973, 74. You're probably what, 15, 16 years old? Yes, I graduated high school in 1975. Okay. And so you're graduating high school right as the Vietnam War is ending, and you have a heart for service, but obviously soldiering and being a Marine and being in the Navy, that wasn't it. No, I wanted to help my community, people that I knew around town. You know, one of the greatest. <laughs> just hold it i'm sorry it was late notice you know like a headset i know i couldn't find one i'm sorry for the birds <laughs> <laughs> all right back to it yeah yeah because yeah. when i move all of a sudden it just drums yeah that's why i just all right now i'm lost where was i we were talking about um <laughs> you just wanted to serve your community yeah yeah, I figured that's the best way to give back. I mean, there's nothing like going to a home, putting out a fire in your neighborhood, and then people, they think of you as like a, a savior. You know, the halo around your head. Right. It's not just a fire helmet. But you do it because it's a calling. Right. The, the love of the job, the love of fire. Well, I would exactly. have to say, people who are being rescued by a firefighter when they see that, you know, that the the red glow and then they see that white halo coming through the door with, you know, the lights on, I would say firefighters look an awful lot like angels. Yeah, I guess so. No, no. I guess so, but I, it's a little kid just scare the hell out of them. Sorry, but with the face mask on, your breathing apparatus is going. You sound like Darth Vader if you're able to talk through it. Because it's the mask would be so tight to make a good seal that you can't your teeth are always clenched together, so it's it's hard to talk. Right. Wow. And to be clear and have somebody next to you uh, understand. And I went into my daughter's class, fully outfitted, and scared the heck out. You know, I, I took off the mask right away and got them all to calm down and uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I started laughing, really. It was easy. Instead of the kids, welcome. I, yeah, I came in full gear. Now, you Caitlin, know, I went to my daughter's uh, kindergarten or first grade in my police car in uniform. Mm -hmm. and she told me that she felt, that even at you know five or six years old, that that was like the biggest flex she had was mm -hmm. all these other kids, you know, their show and tell was a doll or but how, how did you feel when your dad came to school in uniform? I or mean, in, even in his full turnout gear, in a, like full uniform. turnout gear. Yeah. I think even at a young age, I felt proud. I understood very early what my dad did. My parents never shied away from, you know, the importance of his job. 
Um, I used to have a shirt that I, I have a picture of somewhere and it's like a Dalmatian and it says, my dad's a firefighter and I have it with my dad. I was probably, I was, I don't even think I was in kindergarten, but that was my favorite shirt up until it didn't fit. And if I could still fit in it, I would still wear it, you know? Um, I think my my wife bought my daughter of my dad's a police officer shirt too. Yeah. The coolest shirt. It's, it's an honor. You know, I think at an early age, I respected what he did. So when did you actually join the fire department? Uh, well, I joined as soon as I was 18 to the college in my neighborhood. That's when I started. And that was uh, 1976. Okay. So I didn't, I didn't become a New York City firefighter until the fall of 1990 when I got called. I took a bunch of the tests before that, and I didn't do as well. You know, so I was at the last uh, list and I'd miss it. Well, I made sure every time I took another test, I'd get better and better. I was getting older and older, but it was getting better. So I joined it in, uh, into the city and I was 29. And that's kind of, they call you grandpa. <laughs> you already got half a head of gray hair. Uh, but you had, you, you had a decade of experience under your belt. Yes. So yes. they can call you grandpa all they want. You you know. You know, you know they usually follow. And a lot of guys that would follow and do what I did. Because I knew I had experience, like you say, and uh, you always go to somebody with experience to learn right. on a job, uh, especially the fire department and the uh, police department. No way to, no way, there's no other way to learn. Right. But the best is experience. You know that you're a police officer, so it's uh, it's proud. I mean, I've always been uh, yeah, what I think is. Job. I'm sorry. What I think is is really admirable and 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 crazy is that you spent a decade being a, a volunteer firefighter, where most people would have been a few years and been like, "Oh, I'm not a firefighter yet. I'm going to go move on to something else." But this this call for service was so high that. You knew as soon as you saw that engine leaving when you were a child to where you spent 10 years, a decade of volunteering until you were able to become a sworn uh, firefighter for, for New York. I think that is truly amazing. One, because so many people would have just given been up moving on to something else and given up. But this was yeah. such a strong thing. And I think that everything in this world happens for a reason. And you were, this is your calling and you, you, it just shows through everything that, you know, yeah. um, yeah, you don't stick with something for 10 years, right. Not, you know, and to, unless it really means something to you, you know, well, yeah, I continued being a volunteer I did 20 years before I moved to Florida. So That's you, you, you went with the, um, FDNY. And stayed a volunteer firefighter for your local community. Yes. Wow. At the same time? Yeah. Oh my gosh. There was quite a few of us in your department of volunteers. You know, it was just that's that's what you did. That's what you called for. (laughs) Yeah. It makes it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I get it. I, I, I admire it. I get it. But at the same time, I understand what you're saying, too, where you're like, that's just what we did. Like people 
people will say, oh, you know, you, you even said earlier when, when somebody calls you a hero and you're like, I, it's just me. It's a little bit of imposter syndrome where you're like, I know it's just me. I just did it because that's what you did. But other mm-hmm. people just can't wrap their mind around it. And they, it, it, it almost, you know, it's, it's almost like when veterans get the thank you for your service moment and they're like, okay, it's awkward, but cool. Appreciate it. You know, like yeah. I, I just, I went, I, I did it because I cared about it. I did it because that's who I am. Right. You know, I'm just me. I think that's yeah. a, that's yeah. a part of it that is hard for people to grasp unless they've made that commitment and signed that check, you know? Yeah, it's uh, a lot of people never understood. I always told them, you want to walk in my shoes, my because you're going to see and feel everything I did for the years I was in the city. And I happened to be, uh, I was there in 93, too, when they bombed the basement. Yeah. Uh, The first time they tried. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Down there, when, when the smoke lifted in the basement, it was nothing but uh, a huge crater. And when you looked out, you saw the columns, and you can see where the concrete for each floor was wrapping around the column. There'd be three of them because those were three floors that were blown out. And everything just collapsed. Uh, seeing people hanging out the doors on different floors, uh, rescuing a firefighter that fell three floors down. I happened to have the nozzle that day. I was young. And uh, I happened to just be able to put out pockets of fire around them so they could go down and get them. Right. He broke his leg when he landed. Yeah, three floors will do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was at the uh, wildfires of Suffolk County, they called it. Uh, and at the same day, during the night, 21 alarm at the Hotel St. George in Brooklyn, wow. where the whole block was up in flames. So guys would be like, you know, they, they really didn't want to work with you, some guys, because you bring, like, the cloud with you. You know, when I would go to work, and if I caught all these, it would, I'd be working. I wouldn't be sitting around quiet. And uh, it called me the black cloud. Yeah, they called you the black cloud. <laughs> is, that, uh, the yeah, the version, is that FDNY's version of a shit magnet? I was about to say, it. <laughs> okay. we have that same term. We have that same term. It's just a ship magnet. Ship magnet. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, they want to stay away from you. you know, they'll do 24s with you so you don't have to work with you. <laughs> right. It's the poor other guys you didn't line up with that was stuck. That for us, there was always one guy that you wanted to work with because if a dead body call came out, they, you knew they were going to catch it. So if you yeah. were working with them, you knew you weren't going to get the dead body calls because somehow <laughs> the 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 police gods always gave them the dead body calls, and you were you were home free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard a lot of stories like that. And my brother, he's retired out of that NYPD, and uh, he used to tell some crazy stories. You know, but. Of people and sometimes a few pitches. Well, back then you were kind of everybody had a camera on them. They didn't have a cell phone with a camera, but a lot of fire and a lot of cops carried little instamatics in their pocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
so they could snap things that nobody else has done. Yeah, your your scrapbook. <laughs> Nowadays, though, they can uh, seize your cell phone and and download the pictures and find out that you took pictures of Kobe Bryant's helicopter crash when you shot. Uh, but, yeah. Oh yeah. It was a lot of that, boys and girls. Well, I, I I was a sheriff too in Nassau County. I worked in the jail for three years. Oh my god! As a correctional officer before before I was a you got into on the FDNY. Yeah. While you were, I made sure. Yep, I made sure I was going to be covered. Make us all look bad, Tom. Jesus. <laughs> well, you know, back then, I always knew best job in the world was a civil servant because yeah. you're not going to really get fired. You're not going to become rich. No, but you're going to sure. have a rewarding job. Right, and uh, it's better to go to work with a smile. And come home most of the time with a smile than it is to say, damn, why that am I here doing this? Right. You know, why am I digging holes or working construction, breaking my back? You know, that I could do something to the community, the people around me, all in one. And I can get paid for it. Yeah. And I have a retirement, you know. <laughs> I get a, That's I get a shiny I badge, for. and I get a neat hat, and I get a cool spiffy uniform, and I get to ride around in a car with the siren on and blow lights and run into... Yep. I mean, I had, a, I had a training officer ask us, he said, okay, raise your hands, all of you that were here uh, in the academy, raise your hands if you guys would do this job, knowing that instead of a uniform and a, a black and white Crown Vic... If you had to do it in like Dockers and a polo shirt with a Toyota Camry, <laughs> and it, nobody raised their hand. <laughs> like, you know, nobody, wants to, nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to do that. We want to. We want to. You know, you want to ride the fire truck. You want to ride the black and whites. You know, I know mm. cops that are on departments that have the the all white cars, and when they get black and white cars, they're like, oh, finally. I look like <laughs> driving a police car. Now he doesn't, doesn't use black and whites, but out here, that's a big deal. So yeah. Anyway, so let's let's talk about that day because you you said you were tending the garden. First of all, I just I, I just want to point out that if if you're thinking about which line to get in, the police academy line or the fire academy line, he we are we've already told you many many times, firefighters get to sleep on duty. So there, you know, hello, right? Oh yeah. But you also got to do gardening. <laughs> <laughs> so. So there's that. Well, you have to eat, you know. So right. The best times of the uh, 24-hour shift was lunch and dinner. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> you're cooked in the firehouse. Yeah. That's what it was. It was the real tight brotherhood. Yeah. Now, and, and the police, you're going to become tight with your partner. Right. If you're riding two in a car, you're going to have a partner. So you become close. You talk to each other all mm -hmm. the time mm -hmm. about everything. Yeah, about you, know, sure you don't even, tell your wife. Of course. Of course. And even if they don't want to hear it, they'll tell you to shut the fuck up. No, they don't want to hear it. Yeah, too bad. That's <laughs> mm -hmm. the, the way it is. But it's, it's a brotherhood. I really never got to work with women because uh, I didn't have any in my firehouse and there wasn't any around. There was a couple in the volunteers, but that was totally different. Mm -hmm. right. The volunteers. You know, everybody says uh, surround and drown, but that's bullshit. Because that's where I uh, 
I guess that's what it's good. At first, burns or in volunteering, going down the block to put whatever Jerko's house is on fire. You didn't <laughs> care what his color was. If he could speak English, it didn't matter. You just the wet stuff on the red stuff. That was it. That was what I loved about it. And when we became paramedics and EMTs, I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I hated it. I didn't want to put my hands on something. You know, and that feels awkward trying to give a female chest compression. And going, going down on her, trying to give her breath. Until, thank the Lord, they came out with the rebreather. And you were able to stick on their face and you blew into the tube. So if they threw up, you didn't get it. Yeah. Yeah. Friend that picking up old ladies off the toilet because they pushed too hard and passed out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, that's a weekly occurrence, firefighters. That's that's the downside of getting in that fire academy line. <laughs> yeah, especially yeah. now with all the medical stuff. Now they're mm-hmm. with all the all the, the nasty stuff instead of just, you know, doing straight firefighting. Now you're having more of a EMT medical based type of yeah. thing. They're paramedics that put out fires occasionally. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Just like down here in Florida. Yeah. You know, and these guys, even the firemen, they call you a hero. And they, they say the same thing with the, with the police from New York. You work in such a big city. You're known all over the world. It's the best police department, best fire department, uh, the number one city in the world. And it was, uh, I thought it was an honor to be part of it. Yeah. I didn't pay a whole lot, but when I went back and on a Saturday night having beers with your neighbor, I felt proud. You know, and there's an electrician, uh, there's a school teacher, uh, there's a plumber. Yes, you're all, you're all needed, just like the firemen and the police. But I was something to be proud of, and a civil servant. Yeah, well, so I'm no hero, but I've worked and walked beside a few of them. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So you are tending garden on a beautiful, sunshiny September morning. I wasn't supposed to be the chauffeur that day. Uh, the chauffeur for the day tour, he had worked the night tour prior, and uh, his mother had a heart attack, so he had to leave. And one of the guys off the back step Another show, but he stepped in in the middle of the night and continued. Uh, when I came in in the morning, usually it's nine to six, the tour, and then six to nine around the mm-hmm. clock. Usually be there an hour early. So you let somebody go home, beat the traffic. Sure. You know, start there a couple of days early. And I got there and I got stuck in the driver's seat. Here you go. Uh, the chauffeur said, that I'm going home. No, I have time. Put my stuff in the compartment. And it wasn't even 20 minutes. Uh, those bells started ringing. And when we heard what it was, we were able to look out the front apparatus door and see the smoke and see the top of the World Trade Center. How, if you, if you don't mind me asking, how did the call come out? Uh, a plane hit the World Trade Center. Okay, so they just said airplane into World Trade Center. Response. Yes, not, not telling you what size plane or anything. Okay. The last time that ever happened, it was a little type of cub. Yeah, right. That did, uh, 
Right. Was, I think back in the 60s. Well, no, no. Yeah, that was in the 60s. That was the Empire State. So, can really, they weren't prepared to this. Uh, Can you explain some of the thoughts that were going through your head when you heard that call ring out right. over the floor? Well, it really didn't hit me. Uh, I gave a high five when I was in the rig pulling it out to the chauffeur of Lava 118, uh, Leon, and uh, said, see you later. Well, I never saw him again. But... Uh, I pulled that truck out, the apparatus doors, went around, got on the uh, the ramps to the Brooklyn Bridge, and you could see the fire in the towers. And I, you know, I had the pedal, as always, down to the metal. Now I'm going to fly. I told the lieutenant, I said, Tommy, you know, we can uh, pull that red button right there, and the, the rig will stop right here. We'll kill the engine. That's it. We don't have to get there. We'll get there late. We won't be in the shit. Well, that was, you know, I knew that wasn't going to happen. Right. That was just something that came out of my mouth. And the guys in the back were quiet. I didn't hear a peep out of them. Usually they're yelling, they're talking, and you can just hear it from behind you. So Nothing. did you, do you think everybody sensed that this was different? No, yeah. No, yeah, because they knew most likely you're going to have to walk. And you're going to have to walk up and doing. I don't see how anybody can walk up 30, 40 floors fully. Yeah, you got to be in great shape. And at this point, it happened. still hadn't hit you? Yeah, it still hadn't. I followed uh, engine 207 and ladder 110 over the bridge. I kind of got off the accelerator a little bit because I was just staring at the, at the towers. And uh, they got ahead of me. They went to the front of the building. They went straight across Manhattan to the front. I decided to turn down Broadway and go to the back of the building. And there was only a couple of us back there. Most everybody got back in their rig and went to the front. But you couldn't park anywhere because there was, was no parking anywhere. You were down the block if you showed up. Right. I was right there. I was able to Hit a hydrant and do whatever I can on any break to be there. And as a chauffeur of an engine, you don't go in. You stay at the rig because they're going to use you for water. And you have to be there to operate. Right, that you own that truck. Yes. It's not the same with a ladder company. In a ladder company, everybody's got a specific job besides just the one guy being a chauffeur, too. So everybody will, will leave the rig. Unless there's a ladder to be put up, you know, I mean, hundred foot aerial or something on a bucket. Usually, the driver he goes inside with the rest, and they all have specific jobs. You know, irons, cans, uh, roof, uh, outside ventilation. Uh, you have a specific job you got to go to mm -hmm. in the truck. So most of them, when I went to the back, I didn't I never hooked up to the hydrant. Uh, because it was by myself and at uh, four or five hundred feet, that's a lot of hose. Five inch hose to be dragging by myself. So I stood back at the corner of uh, Liberty and uh, Church Street. And, uh, my guys left the rig 
I wanted to go with him. I geared up and everything. Well, the lieutenant ordered me to stay back. I said, well, I'm, I'm here with the engine. I'm not going to do anything. I'm better off with you guys. The more hands, the more work you can get done. Nope. I had to stay there and watch. That's when I started seeing people jump. And we noticed that I was with a couple other chauffeurs. Uh, seeing a woman jumping and holding her skirt down so it doesn't fly up. What are you thinking? What's going through your mind? People are hugging and coming out together. Right. Wouldn't let go until they hit that floor wow. and made that, that awful song. Uh, uh, that was that that hit me in, in the beginning. But being in all in awe and looking up, almost looking straight up, and then I was a half a block away and because it was so tall, you had to look straight up. All of a sudden the chauffeur comes up and he goes, oh, they just hit the Pentagon. We're in war. So that's all you have to hear. And you know your brothers and sisters up there ain't they're not coming back now. That this is war, things are done. Purpose. And you're not gonna survive with stuff. So I really thought I lost my whole engine company. I didn't know the ladder company left. They left the firehouse twenty minutes after I did. Uh, we were usually first due, third call on the first due alarm to the towers because we can get over on the Brooklyn Bridge real fast and be right there. Right. And we zip through the tunnel and come up right in front of the place, which we did in 93. I was on the back step then. I was wet behind the ears, as you see. And... Uh, that was the first. That's the first thing that hit me being in New York City fire. Was being on the nozzle down in that hole. Trying to save somebody with hitting the pockets of fire down uh, below. Three low, uh, floors below you. I'm leaning over a crater's edge. And I got two firemen sitting on me so I don't go over. Now, uh, so when you walk through the roadway, then all of a sudden you start walking up a hill. And then you'd walk back down. And that was where the explosion from underneath came up. It just buckled the floors up, buckled the walls up. Some of the doorways you had to crawl through because of the floors, how they, how they rose from the power underneath that that bomb laid out. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's, I always try to keep fun and laughter into everything I do, because without it, you won't man, it's just, yeah, and that goes for anything in my life, too. It's with the doc. If I can't make a doctor laugh or smile, I won't see him again. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I completely understand, I, and I am that same way. Yeah. You know, you're going to have some sort of normalcy, you know, but I would, you tend to make fun of things right. just to keep guys laughing and keeping their mind going, keeping your mind going. You have to. But no, that was a real, that was an all day event in 93. And uh, we went back to watch the hole as they were working, doing tours, just standing around in the basement watching them work in construction. 
couple of months after that. When they hit that in 93, I knew it was going to happen again because they didn't bring the towers down. Right. Like they wanted to. And what they did is they showed it on the news. They got engineers. And where would you hit the building to bring it down? And all of them agreed, not in the basement. That's just not going to do it. You have to go at least halfway up to three quarters up. Go into the building, fly into the building. Well, that's what they did in 2001. Right. You know, so unknowing to them, they were basically giving the blueprints on national television to, yeah. for a second attack. Well, I'll share this with you guys. I, and I've, I may have told this to you, Chuck, but uh, I remember waking up, watching the news, seeing the second plane hit live. My father, who had retired from LAPD and was working in emergency management, earthquake preparedness, terrorism preparedness, terrorism response. I called him. Uh, he was teaching. Well, he was sleeping. But at the time after he had retired, his job was as a teacher to teach police and firefighters the incident command system dealing with mass casualty events, terrorist attacks, hazmat, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, so I remember waking him up and I said, hey, dad. Um, they just flew two airplanes into the World Trade Center, a couple of 747s into each building. And I will never forget the chilling words that came out of his mouth before anything else. He said, wow, they finally did it. <laughs> and subsequently through my conversation with him, he had said that in the emergency management community, in the, in the terrorism preparedness community, it was not a question of if something like this was going to happen. It was a question of when the terrorists were going to get smart enough to hijack a plane load, loaded with fuel and aim it like a missile and use yeah. it as a weapon. So I, 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 when you say you, 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 know, you hear the, the engineer on TV in 93 given the, 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 the secret, you know, that, well, if you really want to do it right, I just, it, it puts a knot in my stomach because I just think about, you know, some guy in a cave in Afghanistan going, Oh, okay. Next time we do it. Right. You know, <laughs> it's like operational security. We, you should never get yeah. out like at all, especially not nationally. But I guess my, the, my question for you, Tom, um, is as you're sitting there, Other and you watched your, yeah. <laughs> as you watch your, your, your crew go in and you're seeing all this events unfold, what started happening next? And how did that day, uh yeah for you when where were you when the second plane hit we were, where were you at getting, sorry. i was just pulling up to the back okay of okay. the uh towers as i was pulling as i was driving broadway uh, there was people coming from the right they were the towers are to your right a couple of blocks and these you know the Godzilla movie where everybody runs, but they're looking behind. Right. They're yelling and screaming and crying and looking at Godzilla behind it, but they're running straight. That happens. Because hundreds of people slammed into my rig that morning. Oh, wow. Every time I came to a corner and inched my way out, they were just piling up at the, the side of the rig like they were machines. 
Um, we had to get him off the roof so I can get down the street. That that was weird. That was strange feeling. Uh, I I never saw Probably that very before. Surreal. Yeah, the first thing I said to my lieutenant next to me, Tommy, I said, "We're in a freaking Godzilla movie." I said, this, "They're running in. They're all screaming. You don't understand the word this because they're speaking Chinese and they're dubbing English." It's like the Godzilla movie. I, I, you know, it's funny. I can just imagine how weird, surreal thoughts occur to you like that in an instant like that because your your yeah. mind's trying to process what's what it's seeing because you've never seen anything like this in person, and so it just goes to the closest thing that it could equate it to, which in your mind was a Godzilla movie. Yeah, it looked just like that. And you know, the not- mouth's moving and. That's Godzilla, and the mouth moved 40 times before he said, that's Godzilla. (laughs) (laughs) And that's not a normal thing for a a human to do, is they see everybody running away from something, and and you and your partners are all charging in. That's like not a normal response. Counterintuitive, yeah. It must have been so surreal and and so tough to, to be driving into a sea of people knowing that something bad just happened and they are running past you and it just it, that must have been very difficult to, to deal with oh yeah all the time that happens that would happen in the brownstone you're going in and families coming out that happened in the stairway the, the world trade center in 93 and uh, 2001 we're all running in while everybody's running out you know that was uh, one of the models. The only thing different between the police officer running in. See, I always wanted to be a cop, too. I was on the list for New York. A uh, couple of weeks, I would have been in the academy back in the early days. But then, I don't know, carrying a gun at my side back then, that wasn't for me. No, I'd rather be on the other side where you just go in. You're not worried about someone's going to try to fuck you up as you're going in and you know what you what you would be doing right so they they look at you like what the hell are you doing why are you going in there let it burn right (laughs) you can't plus it's always i tell you as a firefighter i used to like watch the fire roll find out where it's coming from take my time yeah, and a lot of times being on your hands and knees in a brownstone or in a dwelling, you'd see the fire rippling over your head. Just amazing. <laughs> it's like you, you don't do anything. You just hold this hose and watch it fire. Kind of amazes. I can only imagine because I know how mesmerizing it is to sit in front of a campfire, and that's yeah on a smaller scale but to see it you know it's such a grand scale it's got to be somewhat hypnotic and i i mean i've been as a cop i've been to burning buildings and stuff like that Mm -hmm. but i've always had other jobs to do you know the fire wasn't my focus it was you know evacuations crowd control you know other things the firefighters dealt with the you know and chuck Chuck knows me i've said this you know fire's magic and i can't shoot magic so i'm i'm out like (laughs) yeah i understand that so you no. you're you're seeing these people run away. The second plane hits, hits. Uh, now you start seeing, and and I'll I'll say this: I I kind of understand a little bit about I think what you're talking about with 
your mindset when you see people jumping and yet still holding their skirts down because there's there comes a point where you you trying to f- understand what's going on in somebody's mind i remember going to one of my first suicides and the guy had shot himself in the head with a 357 magnum but he had put on his reading glasses and put in earplugs and i'm like so you want to be able to see what you're doing but you don't want to be able to hear what you're doing even though you won't hear it after you're done like it was it just i I thought to myself the weird things that go through people's minds when they're in desperate you know mode and I, I can imagine that what you, when you're seeing these people, you're like, lady, you just jumped out of a building. Why are you worried about people seeing your panties? Yeah. I couldn't understand that. They, you know, and they would do it all the way down until that god-awful bang that you would hear every time somebody hit the ground. Mm. And that was the worst. I was able to hear that more than half a block away. You know, yeah. at the back of the towers, you know. And coming down that far, they left a 30-foot circle of themselves after they hit those. uh, I didn't get to see that, but I did get to see somebody's leg in a shoe. The foot was still in the shoe, and part of the leg was on uh, Liberty Church, right almost in front of uh, Engine 10, Latitude. And I could see it from up the block. And that's all I saw was this juice sticking. And then looking closely, seeing part of the black with it. And that had to come out of the building on the second plane when it hit, because that forced everything towards us. Mm. You know, the, everything was landing on it. Up at the corner, and it's a couple of hundred, a hundred yards away from the base of it. So it's like it comes right down on it. I mean, uh, I tell you, when the, the first one came down on the South Tower, you thought it was going to land on the Jews. So you take off like bats out of hell. And it's the first time I ever felt my knees hit my chest when I was running. I was running so hard. And there happened to be a Liberty Park, this little park that was kind of sunk in. A few steps all around to get in or out. And uh, when it came down, the, the force of the air took me from the base. I made one step trying to get over to Broadway, and it took me off my feet, and I slammed into a car about 10 feet away, very wide sidewalk. I hit the back rear corner of the car. My face hit the trunk, and I flipped over onto Broadway. It was enough power to do that. Holy shit. Uh, I was laying just almost in the middle of Broadway, and uh, it, 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 it turned black, pitch black. It was a beautiful day. There was nothing in the sky, no clouds. First time, the day was gone. It was so black you couldn't see your hand in front of you. And the wind was horrendous. Wow. So I crawled to the back of the car, and I crunched up against the, the side of the wheel on the street side because it was coming from the passenger side. And uh, I ended up with a mouthful of debris. So I couldn't say anything, but in my mind, I'm picking this out. I thought I was dead. Now I grabbed my uh, walkie-talkie and uh, 
all I had was the handset. The rest of it was gone. I don't know what happened to it. Get 10 uh, feet of overpressure throwing you across the street is what happened to it. Yeah. It was gone. And I'm choking and gagging. For some reason, I looked to my left. And I just stopped doing what I was doing. And I was on my hands and knees. I saw my wife with my two girls. She was holding each one by the hand. And the, the girls were waiting. And they were smiling. So I didn't know. Am I saying goodbye? Am I saying hello? I didn't really know at the time. I thought I was dead. And you heard nobody. So for a good five or ten minutes, there wasn't a sound at all. Everybody was gone or in buildings trying to huddle and keep out of the, the wind. Because with the wind was debris. With debris was metal shards. And I had one beam come down about 10 or 12 feet from me on Broadway. Oh, my God. Of the beam. If that would have hit me, I don't, that would have not me. Uh, so I guess I panicked and uh, I yelled to help a few times. And then I realized, well, why am I yelling? There's nobody here. Right. Well, I'm the only one here. And I got up and I started walking. And all of a sudden, people would come out one or two here out of a door or from under a car or behind the car and they're just covered. You couldn't tell what color they were. They were gray. Well, you know, what they were wearing, gray. So my instinct was to get these people away from the site. They have no idea what's going on. They're all panicking. But they're looking at me because I've got a helmet on. So they see a fireman, they flock to me. I had at least a half a dozen. I started walking away up one of the side streets. I got halfway down the street, and I told them, you got to go by yourselves now. I got to go back. And I got brothers back there. I got to go back. And they all were pulling me to go away. But I let go with everybody. I was holding two people that were hurt. I get back down towards the area, and all of a sudden, these two doors open up on this building. Now, I didn't know they were doors because they were covered in soot, and out comes a female police officer covered in soot completely. I look to my right, and this guy comes around the corner, and he's got women's pocketbooks. So you know, women were dropping their pocketbooks, I guess, scared. He was picking them up and stealing. Son of a bitch. What so as he comes up the street, I go, look, he's stealing pocketbooks. He puts her hands up like, what do you want me to do? And walks away. <laughs> oh, that's probably <laughs> my favorite thing right there because the surrealist part of that. I said, no, he ain't getting there. And I yelled at him and bent over, bending to the pocketbooks. The left side was up against the building. I said, no, I'm not letting this go. I said something. He looked at me and, you know, like, hey, fuck you. Continued to what he was rifling through the pocketbooks. Well, he was a good 
eight or nine yards away from me. And I used to punt football in high school, so that's what I did. <laughs> I took those few steps, and I kicked this guy's grand nose. And I lifted his ass over his head football and went down on his head. I kicked him so friggin' hard. Now, we were having steel toe shoes. These boots are steel toe. Yeah. I'm telling him never kick something as hard as I kicked this guy. And he ran away with maybe one pocketbook holding his hand. His hand was between his crack. I must have broke his nail, but I sucked it. He was screaming and hollering as he was walking away. I just I couldn't let it go. You'd had enough. I would say yeah. at that point, you'd had enough. That was it. If one more fucking person <laughs> does one more fucking thing, out comes this guy with the pocketbooks. No, that's it. Yeah, Niagara yes. Falls. <laughs> that was one thing good I did. Um, I would say you've but so far you've done a lot of good things, but yeah. Let me let me ask this. When the so the building started to come down, you saw that happening. You started to run. Yeah. You got lifted up. Everything goes black. Then you go back into firefighter mode when you see survivors, you see people that need help. And was it a conscious decision to say to your, was it, was it at what point? Cause you, you say you're telling these people, you got to get out on your own. I have to go back. Yeah. Is that, do you remember saying to yourself, I can't go with these people or did you just, it was instinct. Like you were just like, okay, we're back to being, we're back to firefighter mode. You guys go. I have, I'm going the other way. Well, that was it. I was taking them to the sunlight. Right. We were all in darkness. And there's the sun. You could see, look down the block and then all of a sudden it's sunny. So you're in blackness. And I just told them, look, you got to go. I got to, I got to go back. And uh, on my way back, somebody threw me a Gatorade. And I didn't know it was red Gatorade. So it was more like just washing my mouth out and spitting out. And uh, I got to where my rig was, and I see a few of the firemen from my firehouse show up. And that right there, I'm spitting out the Gatorade, it's red. Well, I had... I had of course, one of the firemen panicked and started. He thinks you're bleeding out the mouth. Yeah. 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 And I'm bleeding internally. And so he slapped me in the head. He goes, Why didn't you tell me you got red Gatorade? Oh, I didn't know. You know, somebody gave me this. It's it great water. Gatorade, you dumb son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, within a few minutes of talking to them, they had showed up. That's when the second tower came down. And I was not again. Not again. They all took off, and I kind of walked away. I couldn't run. I was spent already. And that caught me, and I got kind of lost for about a half a block in total darkness. I know I walked into a scaffolding a couple of times. That was on the sidewalk, so I and I walked into a couple of cars. But uh, after that... Uh, I went into this building and sat down just to try to clear up my head and my, my lungs a little bit, and I guess I passed out. Well, the people in the building that were there picked me up and took me through the back of the building, out some exit, 
they wanted to take me to downtown Beekman Hospital. I still didn't have any idea what the hell was going on. I sort of, I guess I blacked out. Next thing I know, I'm in the back of a pickup truck being taken to the hospital. And some uh, construction guys, they saw us walking down the street and stopped their pickup and threw all their tools out onto the ground. And they put me in the back and took me to the hospital. And I was the first one there from the site. And they started cutting my bunker gear off me. So they cut my pants, they cut my shirt, my t-shirt, they were going to cut my shorts. And I thought, well, got to leave me with some dignity here. Can't take my pants, my shorts. We wear shorts, you know, during the summertime. So that's all they left me was my shorts. So they put me up on one of the floors with intravenous in me. And uh, I guess it's just saline solution. Yeah, trying but to hide it yeah, I snapped back again. And I was like, what the hell am I doing here? So I tried to get the nurse to uh, take the needle out and discharge me, and they won't do it. Now the halls are filled with people. Massive, like it was right there. There was nobody, not as 100 people. So they weren't going to let me go. I pulled it out of my arm, and I left. And I said, no, again, I can't be here. I'm still walking. There's guys that are able to do what I'm doing right now. I got to go back. I got to dig for these guys. They're somewhere. And you got to go. So I walked out of the hospital. Lucky I was able to find my helmet and my boots down in the emergency. And that's all I walked back to the site with. With my boots, pair of shorts. No sure, because they cut everything off me. And I was wandering around the site, and uh, I ran into a couple of guys from my firehouse. They were on uh, online to be told what to do. So they have a, a you know, I guess a list of everybody's names that are going to be going in and looking for guys and digging and stuff. And this was about 11 at night by then. And one of the lieutenants out of the truck, he took off his shirt and gave me his T-shirt. And he says, yeah, you got to put something on. You can't be walking around naked. So then when he says, he goes to one of the other firemen out of the truck, take him back to the firehouse. Because I, I wasn't really, I couldn't do anything right then. I was still kind of shaken up. And with all that was going on there, it was massive chaos. It looked like a, somebody bombed the construction site. I was just shit all over the place. We had to walk over stuff just to get down the block and do things. So Mike took me to the Brooklyn Bridge. We walked across to the Brooklyn Bridge, across Manhattan. And uh, he left me there. There was a bus sitting there. The bus was going to go over the bridge back to Brooklyn. So the bus driver waved me on and I got on, but there was no seats. Everything was full. There was people just jam-packed into this bus trying to get off Manhattan Island. And me with my fire my helmet, they knew what I was. Now, when I turned and looked to the back of the bus, 
every single person was staring at. That's a weird feeling. I guess looking at you for hope, or yeah. I'm going to save them. I'm leaving just like you are. And my firehouse is right on the other side of uh, the bridge. So that whole ride, that, that felt like an hour long. Nobody said a word. Not one word was spoken. Anybody say anything. But they were just there for the whole ride. And I was, that was kind of eerie. And, you know, I was like, what do I have on my back? <laughs> you know, what do I have on my shirt? Uh, you know, it's saying. And then they're it's, all looking uh, at you to say something because they're looking for hope or answers or any any sign of anything. And you, you, I was in shock as yeah. much as they were. Right. Know? Yeah. That's uh, that happened. I mean, you got to clear your mind and keep going, which I was able to do. And then finally at night, I just couldn't anymore. I spent the whole day. We were there since a little after eight in the morning, and it was around midnight. I got off the bus on the Brooklyn side of the Brooklyn Bridge. I made the bus driver stop. And I jumped over a fence, six-foot fence, made my way to my firehouse because it's right there on mid Street. And uh, that's where I saw a couple of firemen and my captain. He was at the firehouse. He showed up late. So he would take care of the guys that were coming in. And I stood there. I was there for about an hour and a half, two hours. Able to take a shower and get some of that stuff off me. But then I, my wife didn't know if I was dead or alive. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was at the hospital, some guy asked me, You want me to call somebody? I gave him my phone number. I said, Just tell her, I'm going to answer the phone. It's Ann. Just tell her I'm alive. So he did that, and that uh, that kind of eased my wife a little bit, but she wasn't sure somebody was just pulling a joke. Right. Because he called and said, I'm sorry, Yeah. Yeah, because she was already starting to fall apart. Mm-hmm. She knew we were first due. You know, World Trade Center is like one of our favorite hits. She uh, knew it. My brother-in-law knew it. And he was a cop in Midtown South. So I had everybody at my house. And when I got home, I drove home. It was like one thirty, almost 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, nobody on the road but tractor trailers going into the city with lights and construction equipment. Mm. The only thing on the road. I pull onto my block. I go in a residential area, single-family homes. And there's a crowd in front of my house. Now I got to pull up and park my car. And it's, it's the weird feeling that everybody's there for you. You know, looking to see if you're alive or dead. Once they found out you're alive, they all left. So it's kind of, I thought I was going to go home for a party or something. I had a couple of cocktails, <laughs> everybody's clapping right. and, and <laughs> saying things and before you know, everybody's gone. And that hit me. 
that was a real quiet. I don't think I slept that night. Well, understandable, but yeah. But like my brothers there at the firehouse and stuff, they lot of them stayed all through the night. They were there 24 hours, 36 hours. I just didn't have it in me. I went to work two days later to work on the, on the pile. And that was our shift. That was our eight or 15 hour shift was wow. working on the pile. That, uh, that takes a lot more out of you. I don't know. I, and you look back and you say, well, geez, did I do the right thing? Was I scared and ran away? You got to be scared to be a fireman or a cop. You wouldn't be doing it. You have to have doubts. You're not invincible. Uh, it's just the feelings. Definitely I went back to work. Yeah. Questioning. That's all you did. And if you had time and you were at the fire, you sat around. We didn't have any engine. The ladder truck was gone. They were all, uh, all messed up, both rigs. So what do you do? You run down the street for an emergency run, or if somebody's going to have a heart attack, you got to run down the street. So it was better off being at the pile instead of sitting around the fire. And that was before they gave everybody masks. Right. I worked a few tours and then that was it. I just, one day the counselor came in, wanted to know if everybody was okay. Uh, the guys pointed at me and said, oh, he was there. Why don't you talk to him? Well, that was the last day I worked because wow. uh, I, I just couldn't, I broke down with this guy. I couldn't, I couldn't touch a fire truck for about eight months. Yes. And I was a volley too, and I couldn't even do that. No, I felt useless. Like, I, I can't do it. I was trained and loved to do. And it's you not know? something you chose, it's something that was done to you. You know, it's not like yeah. it, that, that's one of the hard things for people to wrap their mind around. There's a difference between participating in something and having a, a, a crazy result or a horrific result or having something taken from you. You know, if you're a NASCAR driver and you get into a wreck and you break your leg, you're a NASCAR driver. You chose to get in that race. Yes. We chose yeah. to be police and firefighters, but we having a building. To to war. Right. Exactly. That's not that it's done to you. Not, you know, it's, it's, it's a totally different animal. Yeah. Everything that you're explaining is completely natural and it's okay because yeah. you had, Two buildings come down around you. Right. You, you basically got a concussion. Didn't know where you were. Mm -hmm. Go to the hospital and then find your way, fight your way back from the hospital all the way back towards the site and continue to work. And that is a dedication to service that I, that is, it's completely admirable and amazing. And, and it's very tough for the body to do. And you were pushing your body to the limit and at some point the body goes, I've had enough. Yeah. I need to, I need to take a break and that is okay. And it's completely normal and it's okay being not okay. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. 
but it's as hard chargers as firefighters police officers we're trained to be the ones telling people it's okay we're trained to be making sure people are okay and so in our mind it's not okay when we're not okay we then we feel like we're failing we feel like we're not able to hack it we feel like we're less than we feel like there's something wrong with us we feel like we failed and we haven't we're just we've reached our limit everybody has a limit everybody has only so much shit that can be heaped upon them before they say okay cool everybody i'm gonna take a break i just otherwise my head will explode that's what i felt through a handful of years afterwards that i let myself because that wasn't me right you know i was always doing something always willing to go always helping people when that hit it i couldn't even help myself so how can i help other people right and you feel broken and you feel like a failure yeah yeah that's why still today i take antidepressants because of that, I can't shake it. Right. Like before, I was, you know, crying. Now I can tell you the story from the minute I woke up until I went back to home with no problem. I, was, I know every single step in my mind. It's there. But that cuts both ways. Because... Yeah. Remembering every single step allows you to endlessly second guess every decision, every inch you moved your hand, every turn you made with your head, every, you know, uh, the going to work a little bit early and taking over for the chauffeur, which you weren't supposed to be. And then now that you're the chauffeur, you're married to the truck. And if you weren't married to the truck, you would have been in the building and that, and you have this endless loop, this endless ability to replay those scenarios and you can what if that shit until you drive yourself in fucking sane yes true true my guys when they left the rig and they had to go around another building to end up on uh, the west side uh when they got to the staging point uh chief said hold on hold on i'm gonna get you guys in and he calls engine 216 and engine 205. Grab your members, grab your roll-ups, grab your packs, your tools. You guys are going in. They'll let you know what floor you have to go up once you get in. As they were walking from the staging area to the doors of the World Trade Center on the South Tower, one of the jumpers landed on one of the fire from engine 216. So my company and the rest of that guy's company had to bag this guy up, the fireman, and take him a couple of blocks to the ambulance. Well, after, right after they put him in the ambulance and they started walking back, that's when the towers came down for them. And they were stuck behind an ambulance. Jeez, uh, I, I knew my guys were gone. That in the back of your mind, too, is the crew you left with is no longer with you. It's no longer on the earth. They're dead. Because they went into the South Tower. That I knew. I didn't know they survived until later that day sometime. When a fireman told me, no, no, they were outside. 
my guys and ladder 118 were on the 14th to the 17th floor of the hotel that was there the vista hotel they were going door to door making sure everybody was out of the hotel and that's when they got caught in the collapse and uh, that that was seven of them but six of them Two other guys, a lieutenant from Engine 205, he was working a uh, mutual for another officer in uh, Engine 226. You could do mutuals with each other so you can have your vacation extended or take a mini vacation, five or six days. Somebody works for you and you got to work that tour. Well, he was paying back the tour that day. Right. And Lieutenant Wallace lost his life. You know, I think Cap the. Oh, go! I'm Cap sorry. Go for it. Captain Egan, he had just became a captain out of the ladder company, one one eight, and I saw him that morning show up at the site. And he came running up to me in Lieutenant uh, helmet and gear, and I said, "Marty, you're a captain now. You don't have to wear that crap. You're no longer a lieutenant." He goes, no, they just told us to go to a firehouse, grab gear, and get down there. And he asked me for tools and breathing apparatus. So I gave him my Scott pack and mask. I gave him the axe and halligan. He had a spare one. But he went right in, and he never came out. Wow. At his funeral, his father found out that I gave him gear to go in. And at the funeral, the father turns around me and I guess the funeral parlor and starts yelling at me. I didn't realize what the hell was going on until I realized he's yelling at me because I gave his son gear to go in. He gave him tools. It wasn't, I didn't give him anything. He wouldn't have went in. Right. Well, that's not fair. So I went anger. He's got no one. He's got no one to yeah. yell at. So he picks the easiest target he can. Well, I was going to do the wrong thing, and I was going to take him out right there. His son was going to go in regardless, though. That was him. That's you know? he. He doesn't want to wrap his mind around that. He wants, yeah. he mm -hmm. wants someone it's to blame. Way. It's yeah, the closest way. person. It's just yeah, it's anger. Something to put a something to put a face on. And you know, I got to say, the mind is is a really resilient thing, and. I've, you know, you've ex been experiencing, experienced a tremendous amount of uh, what we call survivor's guilt and mm -hmm. it's okay to feel that. And it's okay um, to, to feel that way. But I think you're doing one step further and you're, you're talking about it. You're allowing those lives to live on for everyone that you lost to live right. on. And by telling that story, it allows their story to continue to live on and, and, and to continue to be honored and remembered. And yeah. it I makes their sacrifice ever, meaningful. Right. And I don't think we should ever stop doing that type of thing. And we, we always need to remember. And by you doing this, it helps everybody else remember and to never be forgotten. And I think that's, that's amazing. And I think what you did was amazing. And I think that it was a very difficult and tough thing to do that day and you put your body through the ultimate ringer 
and the stuff you were experiencing and seeing is not normal. It's not easy. And to, to recognize that and to, to talk about it is, is going to be helpful, I think. And I think that this will help so many more people. Yeah. Um, Cause this stuff is, is difficult to speak about. It's difficult to talk about, but when we can actually talk about it, we're, we're, we're not just helping ourselves, but we're honoring those that are near and dear to us and our brothers and our sisters. Yeah. Well, we always uh, give our guests a chance to dedicate their episode. And I'm assuming um, I can only guess uh, Tom that you uh, have quite a few dedications, but uh, if we went through them all individually, I'm sure we'd be here for another hour because it sounds like you served in a company of heroes. I lost eight guys and that's become the eight at heaven's gate. Hmm. And it's what my license plate's been ever since. Uh, I dedicated to these the guys. They were brothers. They were wonderful. And some had some goofy lives. But uh, all in all, they weren't going to let you down when the shit hit the fan. No. And you can count on you know, and back then, there too, there was a lot of prejudice. Black guys, white guys, the shit that people used to say in the firehouse and call each other names and stuff. That's one thing I never did because I had to respect the people I worked with. Because I know if he's going to be behind me, I better not be looking for somebody and turn around and he's gone. It's to the end. Right. If you're my partner and you're trapped and you ain't getting out, well, I'm not leaving. Right. Well, do you want to uh, tell our listeners um, the company of the the eight at Heaven's Gate? The we have uh, Lieutenant Bobby Wallace, Engine Two Hundred Five, Captain Marty Egan, out of One Eighteen, Lieutenant. Bobby Regan, ladder 118. Firefighter Vernon Cherry. Firefighter Leon Smith. Firefighter Jonathan Vega. Firefighter. Got Davidson. And firefighter. Joey. Joey Agnello. Now it's ironic. That Pete Davidson, his son, is, I mean, uh, his dad. Wait a minute, wait a minute. One of your eight is Pete Davidson's dad? (laughs) Yes. I I mean, I knew Pete Davidson lost his dad as a firefighter on September 11th, but that's, wow, I I would never have guessed. (laughs) I worked with him. He was a blast, one of the kind. And I met Pete. When he was a little boy coming into the firehouse with his father, he didn't milk and cookies, talk to him and stuff. So that's quite an honor to know. You know, I know he doesn't remember. <laughs> you never know. know. You never know what people remember from that day. From that yeah. Day. But uh, yeah, that's the guys I want to dedicate it to. You know, they were brothers, and I'd do anything for them. Well, rest easy, brothers. We've got it from here. Um, 
And Tom, thank you. I mean, I, I know this was not your idea. Caitlin ambushed you. Yeah. <laughs> how do you feel about it? You, you could say whatever you want to her now. You could, what did you, how do you feel about her, her putting you through this? Yeah, she did the right thing. I believe that's, that's always good. And now, at least what I went to, hopefully, instead of a couple of hundred people knowing, maybe there'll be a few thousand people knowing. Well, and definitely. I remember them. Because I still ride around every 9 11 in my old truck with a set of towers that I built and a big sign that's dedicated to the fire department and the brotherhood. And I travel around and do 60 to 100 miles at 9 11 morning. Because that's the only thing I can do down there. I can't that's, go to the service. Right. That's your memorial. That's, your, that, that's how you visit eight graves at once. Yeah. But it's hilarious, though, when I do it. I get a lot of thumbs up, people stopping me to take a picture. But I also get the person who hunts and gives me the finger. <laughs> You know what, though? Cool. I mean, screw those guys. Yes, one of these days, nice. somebody's going to give you the wrong finger and it, they might end up getting torn off. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> right. Tell, right. tell them about the thing. guy stealing pocketbooks and ask him if he still wants to give you the finger. Yeah. <laughs> well, Caitlin, we appreciate sense. you talking your dad into this, by the way. Of course. I, I selfishly wanted it for myself so that one day, you know, okay. I can play this for my grandkids and they like, this is this is where I come from. Um, this is where they come from. You know, yeah. Right. And with, with the line of service him, I want to be in, so I just I look at him like he's everything. And with telling these stories, it allows them they are no longer here to live on for forever, yeah. because now mm -hmm. that is marked down, not just in history, but now through audio that mm -hmm. in your own words that were lost. They live on forever because they were my buddies. They were my friends. They were my family. Yeah. And that's what's important. And Tom, I want to say thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Um, I know this wasn't easy, but I, I hope you you're welcome. I, and I hope beginning this out, it, it helps a little bit and I know it'll help others. I would like to also invite Tom, you and your brother, especially uh, uh, you know, NYPD Copper, you, I, you worked for FDNY. The stories that you two probably have are are long and distinguished, um, and you have absolutely from Chuck and I an open invitation to come on whenever you feel like, and just rap with us about whatever it is you want to rap with us about because it's been a it's been a really good hang and it's been an honor meeting you, sir. And and I know it sounds weird because you're like, what are you talking about? It's just me. It's just Tom. But you know, for for young guys like us that came up you know i went to the academy in 02 you know so yeah. i was in the academy on the first anniversary and um you know for guys like us we we looked at the guys who were serving and we just you know there was there was a level of awe there was a level of respect yeah. that we will never lose because there was a big inspiration for us to do what we did seeing what you guys did yeah my cousin jj was nypd lieutenant during that time so um tremendous respect for all of you guys over there um and uh you know you ha you have our, our our number caitlin you have my yeah. number uh you have the email so let's let's set that up and and get them to come on and tell some some funny stories 
Yeah, you and your brother would tease each other. I'm sure the family rivalry at you know <laughs> was was amazing. And then we can have a lighthearted. Yeah, and we'll, yeah. Have, a, we'll, we'll have a good fun you. one. We can have we'll a light, a nice lighthearted, funny discussion. Yeah. Off the books. Wait, we're not off the books yet. Do we need to go off the books? No, I don't want anybody really know this one. Okay, hold on. <laughs> hold on, wait. Hold on. That's that's amazing. And and those of you that weren't here for us when we were hanging out, uh, hopefully we'll get that story from the man himself, from uh, Tom's brother, when he comes on the show, because that would be an amazing story to hear uh, for you guys. But uh, we'll have to get his permission when he's here. Tom, Caitlin, Caitlin, how do you feel? Like sitting here through this, I mean, have you have you heard it this in depth before? Yeah, one time when I was sixteen, I had my own issues and I didn't grasp it, um, and I was very angry. I grew up, you know, very hardened because of this, and I was yelling at him. And he finally told me the things that he saw, and it hit me, you know, that things were different, but now, you know, 10 years later, um, being an adult and pursuing the career that I want to pursue. He's, I was telling my mom, he's the coolest guy I know. Like he is my dad and he's my hero, but he's so many other people's heroes. And I mean, he's all my friends, dads, like we, we all love Mr. B. Um, and it's an, it's an honor and a privilege to be his daughter and to see, you know, what it means to be like a shirt off your back kind of person. Cause that's exactly mm-hmm. what he is. And well, you um, can count uh, these two podcast hosts as now being in that. We love Mr. B category. Cause uh, <laughs> you, you, I love you. Uh, what an honor it's been Chuck. Uh, why don't you, uh, and you have a few things to tell our audience yeah. as we close out. Yep. I do. Uh, Tom, thank you. American hero. Can't say it enough. So thank you again. Um, And I want to thank uh, you all for today for listening. If you like today's podcast, please go follow us on our Instagram at war underscore stories, underscore official and our Facebook at war stories podcast. If you already follow us and share our posts and our info, you can also go to the link in our bio on Instagram and Facebook to reach all of our socials, our media and our website. Our podcast is on all major podcast streaming platforms, as well as on YouTube. If you want to support us, please go to www.warstories.com official.com and grab some gear uh got some good info on that um as i was sitting in the hospital uh got contacted by our uh supplier for shirts uh those will be done very very soon they are tank tops because it's still hot out and we still have 110 degrees out here in california so we'll um, make sure and uh, send tom and and uh, caitlin some tank tops if you guys want they're uh they're pretty good. They're going to be pretty funny. We we came up with a a funny design for this one. It's not just we usually just do our logo, but this will th- this time we got a little funny with it. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> we still have uh we still have some whoobies, some shirts, patches, mm-hmm. the stickers mm-hmm. left. Um, if you want to be featured on our show and you think you have a story or you want to share your story, please go to booking.warstories at gmail.com. Again, that's b o o k i n g dot w-a-r-s-t-o-r-i-e-s at gmail.com that's booking.warstories at gmail.com and send me your story i get you booked we are looking for law enforcement corrections officers dispatchers firefighters medics and veterans if you have a friend who you think would be a great fit let them know about us and give them our booking email um and please let them know about us 
and do an intro and uh, we can get them bugged again. Thank you all for listening and for the support. Stay safe. Yeah. And Chuck, you just proved to everybody that don't believe it. Marines can spell. <laughs> can spell. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to be uh Caitlin, send me, send me uh, your, your address. I was going to say that before, but send me your address and I'm going to send you guys out some, some uh, good stuff and we'll talk offline yeah. and uh, figure out what, what kind of things I can get going your guys's way um, for a little care package yeah. to say, thank you for coming on. Uh, we don't do you. this to all of our listeners, but this being a special episode and being something very difficult, uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and send you, we're going to send you some, some stuff out. And Tom's got that majestic retired mustache that just, uh, I love, I love it. And everybody guesses. You know what? <laughs> I go up to people on the street and I'm like, are you a firefighter? When I see the mustache, and they're like, yeah, you know, I got the same handlebar as my dad. Yep. You, when you don't have to shave anymore, you don't have to fit the mask. You don't have to worry about uniform standards, facial hair standards. You just let it go. My, you know, my hair's uh, getting a little shaggy and the wife likes it. She's like, yeah, it's, it's, you could never do that when you're on the job. So now you can do whatever you want. Well, thank you guys again. And to all our listeners until our next episode, come home with your shield or on it. <laughs>